Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. <laughs> All right, so have you ever had to replace someone? Like you get a new job, and the person who had the job before you maybe was like a legend. Like you read the job description and you, you know, go, oh gosh, this job description, I think I can handle it. It's a little intimidating. You get there to the job first day on it and you realize that it's not just the job description that, you know, was expected of you. The expectations have shifted because it's about the person you're replacing, right? Because the person was a legend, they were a rock star. And the truth is, you don't quite do things the way they did them and everybody lets you know it because their expectations, I mean, it wasn't the job description that was the expectation. There was the unspoken expectation of the person before you. Or maybe you've gotten a job and the person you're replacing was terrible, right? And, and so there's expectation on the job description, but then everyone's expectation of you is that everything will be like incomplete, you know, um, not up to par, and they have, a, they have great accountability for you to the point that it's insulting <laughs> because they had put all these things into place to deal with the person that was there before you. And you realize, dude, they expect me to screw up. They expect me to not be able to handle it. And so maybe you've experienced that taking a job. Maybe you've experienced that joining a team whenever like they graduate out the seniors and you're coming on to the team and you're like, oh, I'm the new pitcher. Man, everybody has these great expectations of, like me because of the person who was the pitcher before me. Um, maybe it was serving on a committee. Um, and, and maybe you're someone who, like, this is your greatest nightmare. And so that's why you don't want to volunteer <laughs> for things. Or when you get asked, you know, hey, would you, you know, step onto this committee? Would you serve in this way? And you think, uh-uh, I'm not following that last person. No, you tell me this is what I have to do, but I know what you really want is that last person. There's all these other expectations. And sometimes we're really terrified of becoming a disappointment. <laughs> so with that, that's going to be my little springboard into our scripture today. Come on on up, Amelia. And so in your bulletins, I think it says that we're going to read um, the triumphant entry in Luke, but <laughs> I changed my mind. We're going with Matthew today. So, sorry, Matthew 21, open your Bibles. And Amelia's going to read starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and excited. Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
who is this? That's what they ask. Who is this? And we're going to kind of look a little bit further into who this is, right? Um, so to get a greater understanding of what's actually happening here in this specific account, um, we're going to take some historical context um, to play into this. So you're going to get a little history lesson. Aren't we excited about that? Story time. All right. Okay. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years take place. Okay. And so we end the Old Testament with the Persian Empire being in charge. Um, and the, the Jews are kind of scattered all over the place, but they're allowed to start recollecting and rebuilding Jerusalem. And they have some kind of decent contract with Persia. Persia is at least nicer to them than Babylon and Assyria. Um, so then in that 400 years, um, what we're going to zero in on is what happens kind of around um, 200 AD to about um, 165 AD in this like chunk Less than 200 years before Jesus is going to arrive on the scene. A bunch of crazy stuff happens. So um, Persia is going to fall to the Greek empire. Alexander the Great comes in, does his thing, has his great conquest, beats up Persia. And now the Jews are going to be held under um, the Greek empire. Um, and they do a couple of things. They start to institute the language of Greek. So everyone's learning that language. And then they also look to try and not just unify the Greek empire in a common language, but they're going to unify the empire in a common religion. So they come up with this idea called Hellenism. So Hellenism is this religion where you basically adopt everyone's religion and you just pull it together so there's no conflict. So if you're a religion that worships a couple hundred gods, like what's a couple hundred more? You know, we're all good here, right? Unless you're Jewish, right? Because if you're Jewish, you follow the law of Moses. And he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There's only one God. You're not taking on others. There's just one. And um, to hear me is the word is shamad. And so that entire... Um, understanding that there's one God, you're worshiping one God, you're loyal to him and him alone. Um, they just called that the Shemad at that point. And it was their remembrance that no, we're not following for Hel We're not going to fall for Hellenism. We worship one. Well, when you do that, you become an enemy of the state. You become an issue. You're a problem now, right? So the Jews are becoming this problem. Now, another thing that complicates stuff for them is that the area of Judea was right in the middle of two Greek dynasties. So there's the Greek empire, but they kind of picked out different chunks of land and areas where they had dynasties and different kings to rule. And Judea is right in the middle where two kings were always fighting over Judea. They were always fighting over the Jews. And so back and forth, one would rule them and then the other one would rule them. And it was just, um, it was the worst um, and then eventually they got mostly, they got conquered um, and kind of stayed conquered um, by the Seleucid dynasty versus the Ptolemy dynasty. And the king that was um, reigning over them was a guy by the name of Atticus III. Atticus, sorry, Atticus III. So Atticus III has beat up the other dynasty, is ruling Judea. Um, and at this point now, Rome's coming in. 
And we know that Rome's in charge by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, right? So Rome's coming in to press in on the Greek empire. And so Anicus III is holding off the other dynasty. He's trying to hold off Rome. And he's super ticked at these Jews because they will not get in line on Hellenism. They keep worshiping all of these gods. So he starts to get nasty against the Jews. Um, he starts to get some focus in on them. Um, and as he starts to get heated into that, he ends up dying. And his son takes his position his, as king. And he's Anicus IV. And Anicus IV is nasty. <laughs> like, he's even worse than his dad. Um, and so he's, he's bent on making the Jews become Hellenistic and stop worshiping just one. And in that time, he gets approached by this priest from the temple named Jason. And Jason's like, hey, I want to make a deal with you. Okay, you make me high priest, I will turn everyone Greek. I will turn the Jews Greek. We will be in Hellenism. Just make me priest, high priest. I want to be high priest because his brother was the high priest and the governor at the time. So he wanted to overthrow his brother. And Anarchus is like, absolutely, job is yours. And so with that, it became um, illegal to practice circumcision, the Sabbath, to own scripture. Um, you'd be tortured till you denied Yahweh and would take up Hellenism, or you'd be killed or sold off into slavery, and they were bent trying to like burn all the scripture that they can. So it became extremely difficult, and then one by one, they started replacing the priests in the temple with Hellenistic priests. So it was a huge attack because it wasn't just um, now... Uh, the Greeks attacking the Jews, it was Jews attacking within who were all starting to side. So in the thick of all this conflict, um, we're going to zero in and kind of look at a, a family. So there's this uh, priest named Matthias Maccabeus, and one day he goes to the temple, and he's going to be doing his duties, doing sacrifice, and a Hellenistic priest comes in and is like, no, I'm your replacement, and I'm doing this sacrifice. Well, that was a big old conflict. And the day ended with Matthias actually killing the Hellenistic priest, trying to stop him from performing his sacrifice. Um, and that led to a massive revolt that happened amongst the Jewish people. And we call this the Maccabeus War um, that takes place. And so all of the Jews are realizing this is a threat, and we're going to have to get violent to try and just hold Greek, um, the Greeks off because they're being violent with us. And so about a year of the war... Um, Matthias dies, and he needs to be replaced. So Matthias has five sons that are priests, and one of them is kind of got a reputation going for himself. He's very well noted, and his name is Judas. So Judas Maccabeus steps in to run the Maccabeus War, and he was known, he was very famous because he had this, he's this priest who rallied this little troop of guys and they were super into guerrilla warfare. Like they would sneak into the villages and then they would attack the Greek troops as they were coming in and end a battle before it started. And they just had a great reputation. They were really, really celebrated. Um, and he was growing very popular. Um, so Anarchus the fourth is now super irritated. And he's like, dude, I'm just gonna get super nasty here. So he sends his guys into the temple one day. <laughs> He steals a bunch of their religious 
artifacts, sells them off, um, destroys a lot of things, puts up a statue of himself, Jupiter, and Zeus, and then he has them slaughter pigs on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, that is the biggest insult, uh, to slaughter pigs on their altar. And um, that, that moment, I mean, it was such a heavy, tragic, hard thing for that community to be going through. So in the thick of all of that, where the temple is really um, in, in a bad state, um, something that's really tragic that happens to them is the, the oil has been stolen that goes into the main lamp um, in the holy place. And so they have the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the holy place, we remember that Moses had this lampstand that was made. And when it burned, it was to symbolize the presence of God, that God was always with them no matter what was happening, what was going on. And with the oil being gone, that lamp only had one day's worth of oil left. And so they were quick to try and go find more of this special oil that they use, but they were seven days out from being able to add more oil to the lamp. And the miracle that took place during this time is that lamp continued to burn for seven days on one day's oil. And that is a celebration of Hanukkah. So Hanukkah was a celebration that came about before Jesus even arrived on the scene that the Jews would remember that in the most tragic, darkest, worst moments that it seemed like their God wasn't so big and he wasn't so tough and he wasn't going to win their battles, his presence would never leave them no matter what. And so Hanukkah came out of that, um, that time period along with the celebration of Judas Maccabeus. So Rome comes in beats up the, um, the Greek empire, takes over, and Judas Maccabeus continues to be really annoying. <laughs> you know, He's not going to worship multiple gods. He's going to worship only one. He's not bending to Hellenism. And so Rome, you know, as they're trying to establish themselves, goes ahead and decides, okay, this, kid, this guy is annoying. We're going to just negotiate with him. And so out of negotiation with Judas Maccabeus, um, they establish what's called the Sanhedrin, um, which is a form of Jewish government that's still under the Roman government. And we don't hear a whole lot about the Sanhedrin until our Holy Week when Jesus starts to go on trial. Because Jesus is going to go on a series of trials where we start to understand this government. And um, the, the Sanhedrin was actually a lot of Maccabees that got um, established on there, but there's a lot of priests and people that got put onto this um, this little ruling group of people so that the Jews could govern themselves to a certain extent under Rome. So um, the Sanhedrin gets established um, and they're allowed to carry on with some of their religious practices, worshiping one God, as long as they don't cause too much trouble for Rome. But Rome is keeping a really tight eye on the Jewish people. Um, and so Judas he didn't fully liberate the Jews from their captives, but they had not gotten this far into being free since, you know, the time of King Solomon. <laughs> like he brought them really far in having some measure of freedom, some measure of government, some measure of leadership, and they had not seen that in, you know, almost a thousand years. And so Judas was an extremely celebrated guy. His symbol was a palm branch. 
So back looking at our triumphant entry of Jesus. In the Hebrew tradition, when a king was coming to your city, you'd run out and you'd be excited about him and you'd parade in. And when the king got to your city, you would take off your coat and you'd throw your coat down and he would, your king would come through. And your king would often come on a colt, a donkey. Um, that, was that was actually a very noble, we think that Jesus wrote that to be humble. That was a noble thing. Um, that the king, that's how you greeted your king. But how Judas, whenever Judas entered a city or entered a village the way he was greeted, he came charging in on his war horse, and the people would run out and grab their palm branches, and they would wave their palm branches, and they would cheer for Judas Maccabeus, their great liberator, and throw down their branches. And that's how you greet him. And so when we look at Jesus's triumphant entry, we need to ask, who were they actually welcoming into their city? I mean, Jesus doesn't actually seem to be pumped about it. The people wanted Judas Maccabeus. They didn't really want him. He rides right in, and, and he clears the temple, too. Jesus comes in, goes into the temple, turns over the money changers' tables, fashions a whip, drives out the livestock, and tells the temple to knock it off. That's what Judas Maccabeus would have done, too. Like he was all about cleaning the temple out. Let's do this thing. So Jesus is kind of falling in line at first with them. But then Jesus has these heartbreaking little narrative moments um, about like, gosh, you guys don't get it. And you kind of wonder, what is he? They're celebrating him. They're backing him. Why is Jesus not like soaking it up? Because they were waving palm branches at him. <laughs> It's like Jesus, you know, answered a want ad for Messiah. And the expectations of Messiah was really about the guy they thought was the Messiah before him. <laughs> and he has like to fill the shoes of this national hero who now has his own holiday. Right? They had great expectations for Jesus. And by the end of the week... Jesus is a great disappointment, isn't he? How does this one crowd go from celebrating him on one day and are wanting him arrested by Thursday and crucified by Friday? So I know the title of my sermon is Great Expectations, but I'm not actually talking about that. I'm talking about disappointment this morning. But I thought if I put disappointment somehow in my t sermon title, nobody would want to stick around and hear it. So I didn't want to actually put that in there, but I'm talking about disappointment and that sometimes we struggle with disappointment and Jesus was a huge disappointment and he knew he was about to be one. They didn't want him. They wanted Judas and he knew it. We're always told to count our blessings, right? And sometimes that's kind of hard and we feel convicted. Oh, I, it's actually hard for me to count my blessings. That's, I, and it shouldn't be hard. But I said, hey, count your disappointments. I mean, you can, like, count those suckers, categorize them, put them in a timeline. I mean, we've got our disappointments down, don't we? Well, we kind of have those. <laughs> and, and disappointments are deeper and more personal um, than just the outward activities around us. Because the outward activity around us is, like, part of our prayer quest. Like, you know, 
Um, my prayer request is for God to heal someone who's sick or to help in this really tragic situation happening socially or this or that. But the disappointment piece is, is inside us. It's the part of asking God that hard question of like, why are you letting this happen? Do you not see this? Do you not care? Do you not have the ability to fix it? Disappointment is the very personal part that gets attached to the outward prayer request. And we struggle to verbalize it and acknowledge it. And when that disappointment is in God, sometimes we struggle with that because we know he's good and we know he's holy and we know he has a plan. But it doesn't feel like it sometimes. It's okay to admit it doesn't feel like it because what you know and what you feel are in conflict a lot of the times, right? At least it is for me. I mean, there's the reality of the validness, I feel this way, but I know what's true. They're in conflict and it is absolutely okay. And part of us growing closer with each other is being able to take the prayer request to the next part saying, this person that I love is struggling with this. And if I'm being completely honest right now, I'm struggling with God that he's allowing it. Because you guys, we need to pray for that part too. Let's not just pray for God to fix the exterior. Let's pray for God to fix the interior of that. Sometimes God's disappointing. Sometimes it feels like God is disappointing. And Jesus knows that they're going to be really disappointed with him by Thursday night. He knows that. Um, so I'm one of, one of my jobs <laughs> at Three Rivers Christian is um, I'm a missions coordinator. So I set up mission trips that we go on. Um, once a year. And so um, students who want to go on a missions trip, we make little teams out of the kids. And um, our teams are, our, our mission trips are all Young Life expeditions because Young Life is worldwide. And so this year, um, I set up a team to go to Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Cambodia, and Ukraine. And I was talking with one of our girls who was going to Washington, D.C. Or, I'm sorry. She was going to San Francisco. And she'd gone to Washington, D.C. the year before. And she was saying that her biggest fear about the San Francisco trip was that she'd be disappointed because she had the best time ever on her Washington, D.C. trip. Like she had, I mean, they, they prayed over the city. She saw miracles happen. I mean, crazy stuff happened on that missions trip. And she was like, what if it doesn't happen in San Francisco? What if God doesn't show up the way I, I, I was expecting? And she was really, really worked up that her biggest fear would be being disappointed. That kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? Sometimes we don't go for things because we are more afraid of being disappointed. Because we have great expectations. Well, she ended up getting a really bad stomach bug the very morning of. They left on the trip driving down to San Francisco, and she ended up having to get dropped off in Eugene, and she missed the trip with her grandparents. So there was a whole other measure of disappointment, right? Now she's like, oh, I can't wait for next year. I got to go somewhere next year. I'm like, yeah, you do. But it sounds like us, 
Sometimes our biggest fear is just being disappointed. And, and the one that's going to really get you is if you're disappointed in God, you know? So maybe we don't rely on him like we ought to because if he doesn't come through the way we were expecting him, our expectations were for him to come through. If he doesn't come through that way, we don't know what we'll do with how sickly disappointed we'll be. Um, so the trip that I was on was um, doing the Young Life Cambodia trip. And um, we were, that's why I haven't been around it. We were gone for two weeks. Um, and uh, we were midway into one of our projects. And um, one of my male leaders, Brady, who's a friend of mine, um, got really sick. Um, like in the middle of the week when we were going to finish up one of our big projects and he was going to push through. And I was like, um, if you push through, you're going to like miss the whole rest of the week. Like you need to take a, a time out and just go rest and drink a ton of water and just let God heal you right now so that you can finish the week out. And he just really did, wanted to push through. And I, I had to say to him, the worst part isn't that you're sick right now. The worst part is that you're disappointed. Um, you've come all this way and you have all these expectations, but right now you need to just be still. So be still, deal with being disappointed, and then join us when you're feeling better. And he said um, that it was true that his um, disappointment in feeling crummy was actually worse than feeling crummy. Because that's the hard issue part, right? That's what it is. There's the external problem, but then when we internalize it, that's the real problem. And I mean, I get that. I've been all excited to go places and do something, and then all of a sudden I'm sick. And I'm more disappointed in being sick. And that's the worst part. It's worse than the actual suffering of feeling sick kind of thing. I mean, it sounds like us. Uh, so then for myself, <laughs> like midway through the week also, um, Brady asked me how I was doing. And I had to give him my honest answer. And I said, well, I'm kind of mixed. Like I had all these like huge expectations um, that God has totally met, um, that God has, we, we're just building these amazing relationships with the Cambodians and we're watching our kids grow and we're seeing them be brave and do things they wouldn't normally do. And God's just really pouring out his spirit on the group and said, but you know what? In my quiet time, quiet time, God's kind of, he's, well, he's quiet. I mean, I'm not quiet a lot, but I'm working at being quiet. And then he's being quiet too. What is that? Because my expectations was when I got away and I had my time with Jesus, he was going to talk to me. And, and I had expectations that he was going to give me some kind of direction and affirmation for all the things I was coming home to. And I'm disappointed that I'm not getting it because those are my expectations. I want this divine appointment, Jesus, and I want it this way, and I want, I want to be talking about these things, and I'm not getting it. It's like I just stood at the gate, and I didn't throw my coat down, but I waved my palm branch at him, <laughs> right? I showed up to tell him who he was with my expectation. Who do you expect Jesus to be? <laughs> I think that's the big question. Who do you expect him to be is different than what you're expecting for him to do in your life right now. That's actually two different things. Who he is and what he's up to, I mean, yes, they're connected, but sometimes 
what we want, when we, when we try and describe who Jesus is to us, we describe what he's doing and not just who he is. And Jesus jumps on this thing because he asks the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah and some say you're John the Baptist. On Palm Sunday, they say he's Judas Maccabeus, right? Like everyone has come up with somebody else to assign to Jesus. And then from that, they expect him to overthrow Rome or whatever it is. And then Jesus zeroes in on Peter and says, who do you say that I am? Like, I don't care what they're saying right now. I want to, I, I care about what you have to say. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And Jesus, yeah, that, that was revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. That's when God moves. And, and honestly, we don't know fully um, who Peter thought of the Messiah as being. I mean, yes, you know. Got 100% on the quiz. Jesus is the Messiah. But he also possibly had a little bit of a, a Judas um, uh, connection there as well, this expectation that Jesus was going to overthrow Rome, right? Because doesn't he want Jesus to overthrow Rome? He wants that too. And so if Jesus asked you, who does the pastor, the church, or the scripture say that I am? Like, pop quiz, right? And you know the right answer, don't you? He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's my Savior. He's God. Right? We all know the right answer, right? It's right there. And then Jesus is going to be like, yeah, but who do you say that I am? That can actually start to become a more difficult question because you have to factor in not just what you know, but what you're feeling at the moment. And then ask Jesus to deal with the things you're feeling, <laughs> right? And you have to decide if Jesus is the one worthy of your robe, even when he doesn't fulfill your palm branch. And that's hard. It's kind of easy to say, <laughs> but in truth, it's hard. And sometimes we don't even realize that there's a disconnect there because we're just like focused on the palm branch and we don't realize that he's not that. Um, because what we want is we want him to uh, liberate us from being sick, liberate us from Rome, whatever your Romes are right now, um, from your financial troubles, your social dramas, your loneliness. But God just wants to liberate us from ourselves. So I, I get caught up on Romans 5, um, 3 through 5. It reads this. We also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us but God has poured, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And so I think if I am disappointed then I'm doing something wrong here because hope does not disappoint. So maybe I'm hoping in the wrong things. And there it is. Maybe some of my great expectations are mine and they don't match the heart and plan of God. <laughs> Even if they're good. 
even if your, your, your hope and your expectation is good and it's beautiful and it's loving and you think, how could God's heart not be for this? God's heart is for things, but he also has a will that um, is, is open to allow us to have ours and we don't make good decisions, right? And then there's consequences, right? We go back to the fall and we realize that we caused that. And there's consequences, so there's suffering, right? So sometimes it's not what you're going through that's the problem. It's the expectations that are a problem. So I'm absolutely not saying have no expectations. I'm not saying, well, if you don't have any expectations, you're never disappointed. I'm not saying that because that's a whole other level of um, of, of insult to God. Like, really, you don't expect anything of me. It's like getting the job where they expect that you can't really do it. You know, God wants you to have expectations for him. Yes, absolutely. Um, but he gets to lay the expectations. We kind of forget that and we start laying our own. (laughs) Right. So if I find my suffering to be disappointing that I'm far from living out Romans five, Because according to Romans 5, when I suffer, I should come out on the other end filled with hope and lacking disappointment. And that does not sound like me. Perhaps when I suffer um, and I come out on the other end of disappointment, it's because I'm missing something. I'm missing the part about perseverance and character. Because perseverance and character happened between suffering and hope. And there's two little plugs in there that I'm kind of missing out on. So it's okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, it's okay to have times of feeling disappointed. That is, that is okay. But sometimes fixing our disappointment isn't working hard to have our expectations met. Sometimes it's just changing our expectations. And that's the hard thing when talking with, um, with one of our girls going to San Francisco. Like, just change your expectation. Let Washington, D.C. be Washington, D.C. And let San Francisco be San Francisco. And let God do something amazing there. We hold on to the good things that were behind us and then we completely miss out on the good things in front of us. Because <laughs> the good thing in front of you is going to be unlike anything you've ever had. And we, oh, instead, we're just disappointed because of we, we compare it to what we had, right? It's like the Israelites, you know, in the desert thinking Egypt, they sat around boiling pots of meat and it was great. Like that was not great. You hated Egypt, you know? All of a sudden, Egypt sounded great. So I'm not saying have no expectations. I'm asking, are your expectations the same as God's? Are you hoping in the same things as the Holy Spirit? And if you are, can you trust his timing? See, that's the hard one right there, right? When you know that your hope isn't terrible or selfish or even aligns with the heart of God, but you have to trust in his timing that God's heart's going to come through. So how do you keep from being disappointed till he fulfills your hope in his perfect timing? And maybe it doesn't get fulfilled at all, but it's the springboard into something better that's going to happen later. Boy, it's really hard to have understanding for that, doesn't it? Isn't it? It's really hard to have that. So, uh, my, my expectations for Cambodia was super loaded. 
There are so many things I expected for Jesus to do. And he did a lot of them. Um, I wanted our students and myself to be stretched, to seize moments, to have, to be brave, to grow, to have our own God moments, to become affirmed, humbled, and convicted. I wanted the Cambodians to experience love and empowerment, comfort, and grow in their openness to hearing the gospel, which was super cool. I mean, there was kids that we made connections with at the schools um, that were always like not so sure they'd ever check out that Young Life Club. And then they like, we had like 30 kids who had never been to Young Life Club show up to Young Life Club um, that we had met and spent the week with at the high schools that then came to club that night and started plugging in with all of the Young Life leaders. So they're now hearing the gospel regularly in their camera language. And um, there's those contacts that are happening over there now. So, you know, I wanted all those. I wanted to make memories. Um, I wouldn't have side adventures and whatnot while we were in Cambodia. All that happened. But then I wanted some like wild direction and affirmation for when I get home. I always want that. It's like my great welcome home from Jesus kind of thing with direction and affirmation. Like I'm on a mission. I'm ready to go. And I didn't get that affirmation. <laughs> but instead I got something else. So, um, Jesus is pretty funny sometimes, you know, I mean, like he wasn't telling me what I wanted. You know, I, I wanted him to give me action words, do this, let's go. Here we go. I always want a, here we go kind of pep talk from Jesus. And instead, um, I got something that was just more personal because that's what happens when, you know, you, you know, he, he doesn't bend to our palm branches. Um, so while we're in Cambodia, every single time we saw a monk, I like had to take his picture. Um, so there's these Buddhist monks who are in the mornings, they come out and they wander through. We're in Phnom Penh in this city, this modernized city. And they're in their little orange togas and they walk around and they take offerings from the businesses and bless all the business owners in the morning. And whenever we were out and there was like a monk, we had a monk sighting. I had to like kind of try, we're like cruising by on tuk-tuks and I have to take their photo like steal a picture of them. And the kids are like, why do you want to keep photographing the monks? And I'm like, cause they look like time travelers. I mean, do they look like they belong in the city? No, they don't. It's like when you're in Tokyo and there's like some gal who gets on the subway dressed in her geisha outfit. She does not belong there. She looks like a time traveler. You got to sneak a picture of that, you know? So I was always taking pictures of the monks when they came out in their little togas in town. And or in the city, and um, I started saying, like, okay, Jesus, you know what I want? I want to see a monk drinking a frappuccino. That's what I want. That'd be awesome. That'd be so cool. I want a photo of a monk drinking a frappuccino. And so throughout the week, the kids would be like, Miss McCaddy, there's a monk. And I would take a picture of the monk, and I'd be like, Jesus, I just want a monk with a frappuccino. That's all I want. Come on. That's all I want. And the kids would always laugh and tease because I kept making this ridiculous request, right, all week, you know. All week. I just want a monk with a frappuccino, Jesus. Let's have it. I know you can do it. Come on. So we're getting to the airport. We're all getting out of the tuk-tuks. We're all crying and hugging the Cambodian Young Life kids. And we're all like hysterically crying and having our problems because we have to, we have to leave. And then all of a sudden, Bailey screams, Miss McCaddy, it's a monk with a frappuccino. And there was a monk with a frappuccino sitting there drinking it at the airport in the 11th hour. Jesus gave me a monk with a frappuccino. I'm like, yes! And I ran over, and the kids were like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to go up and ask him for his photo. And I took his picture. That's right. And the kids are just like, this is the craziest testimony ever. God has a sense of humor. Yes, he does. 
You can have the weirdest prayer request and make it public every single day and be like, you know, Jesus, I know you can do it. Okay, honestly, it's probably not really important on your list. But if you did it, that'd be kind of awesome. So the kids can see that you're playful, that the kids can see that you're, you get a sense of humor and that you come through. And even in the 11th hour, because your timing is perfect, you know, that you're going to come through. And he did. Didn't say a word to me in quiet time, but he gave me a monk with a frappuccino. Because he had something else for me. It was personal. So like in all of my quiet time, did he hear me? Yeah. He heard me in my quiet time. Even though he wasn't being the savior I wanted in the moment to say what I wanted to hear him say. But he heard my ridiculous request that I cried out from a tuk-tuk every morning. <laughs> He still showed up. He still did it. And I, you know, I look back and I'm like, okay, Lord, all right, all right. You know, it's like a test of humility because I'm getting bossy. Yeah, I'm kind of bossy sometimes, right? It's me and my palm branch. So here's the, here's the thing with um, a robe. Um, the... The significant, thing, the significant thing about throwing your robe down is, is this, that um, a, a robe in this time period, it's kind of like if you're Scottish and you have your tartan, right? Like some part of your family line is like woven into, there's a pattern of your family like indicated into your robe. Um, so it's basically like all the kids running around with their sports teams and they have their last name printed across the back the back of their, you know, hoodie, you know, they're on the track team, their hoodie has their last name on it, you know who they belong to, you know, um, the Hebrew people, there was some little indicator in their robe, like what tribe they belonged to, who their family was, there was some sense of identity. So your robe had some marking of your identity and who you were and who you were. Now, if you were to take that off and throw it at the feet of your king for him to walk over, That's a heck of a lot more powerful than a demanding palm branch, isn't it? To cast your robe down. Maybe that's the part that we miss in the middle where we go from suffering to hope is that somewhere in the middle you've got some perseverance and some character. Because if you throw your identity down to Jesus in the thick of your suffering, that's where you start to take on some of his qualities and his character. And aren't you going to come out on the other side with the same hopes, dreams, desires, and understanding that he has? And I don't have a really good practice of that. So <laughs> I'm in the middle of my suffering to throw down my identity, to throw down my stubbornness, to throw down my demands, to throw down my robe. And maybe that's a little thing that I think like the nation of Israel had learned before when it came to that Hanukkah story, <laughs> that in their suffering in that moment, their temples destroyed, there was hope because that light did not go out. And it probably wasn't um, a miracle they would even think to ask for. It just shockingly happened. <laughs> so God's awake, and he's hearing you, and he's playful, and he has a sense of humor, 
And sometimes we need to step back and realize, man, okay, God, maybe I need to step back and look at my suffering a little different because I'm disappointed and I'm disappointed a lot. Jesus is not always what we expect or we want, but he's always what we need. He's always what we need. And we need a king that we lay our coats down for. We do not need a makeshift Messiah we can wave our palm branch at. And when I say makeshift Messiah that we don't need, I mean the Messiah we cooked up in our head. He is your Messiah, but he's a Messiah on his terms. Take it or leave it, but you don't get to mess with it. It's not our place to mess with that. And it'd be terrible if we did, right? Because he'd end up not being who we needed. So perhaps an honest conversation with Jesus starts with, Jesus, I'm so disappointed. Maybe that's where it starts. I'm so disappointed. And, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm disappointed with myself so often. But you know what? I'm disappointed with you as well. And I know, I know it's not your fault. And I know that you're good. And I know that you're loving. And I know that you're holy. And I know that you have a plan. But it doesn't feel like it. And from there, see where it goes. And see if he starts to change some of our expectations. Lighten some of the disappointment. Trade your disappointments for hope. And prepare you to go to the cross on Friday. So Jesus stands at the gate. Are you laying down for him your coat or a palm branch? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you um, for being here and being in the midst of our quiet times and our stillness. Lord, we thank you for being in the thick of the pain and the chaos and the suffering as well. And Lord, may we be able to just openly accept you and love you for who you are and know that you do the same for us. Help us to lay down our identity, lay down our coats, to take up your character and your your hope, Lord. May we see our disappointments as something that needs to actually be celebrated because you're moving in it and it will become the best part of our stories someday. Lord, help us to separate what we know and what we feel And Jesus, we just pray you move in that. Help us to grow closer as a family, to be able to share um, not just the external situations we're praying for God to fix, but we're praying for you to fix, but um, to be open to share that we need you to fix some things we're struggling with inside. Lord, we give you the rest of this time and the rest of this week. May it glorify you. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen.